Hello everyone, I'm J. Carl Ganter, Managing Director at Circle of Blue, and we're in the studio getting ready to join you live from Interlochen Public Radio in the heart of the Great Lakes. Today we'll focus on the unfolding and accelerating challenge of what experts are calling a national groundwater emergency. Does the nation face a clear and present danger to health and the future of its water supplies? And what is the extent of groundwater contamination underfoot? These are complicated questions in the beginning of a story that continues to grow. There's no doubt that it affects millions. If you're just joining us today, and many of you are for the first time, the show opens with special guests, including Democratic Senator Gary Peters of Michigan, who called the Senate subcommittee hearing last week in Washington to dig deep into the ramifications of a chemical family called PFAS that is contaminating groundwater in Michigan and across the nation. And we'll speak with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, the pediatrician who exposed water contamination in Flint, Michigan. And we'll be joined by experts and journalists on the front lines of these stories that are evolving every day. Then we'll go into three expert-led facilitated breakout groups where you'll have the opportunity to share your voice in this important conversation. I assure you, this isn't a typical webinar. Visit our latest coverage produced with Bridge and Detroit Public Television's Great Lakes Now. You can find this and much more at circleofblue.org, bridgemi.com, and greatlakesnow.org. Stand by. We'll get started at the top of the hour. And welcome to H2O Catalyst. And what's in my water? That's our question today. And fast-emerging chemical contaminants called PFAS or PFAS are the tip of the spear for threats to groundwater in Michigan and nationally. Nitrates, industrial chemicals, and pathogens have been swept underground for decades. What else is in the groundwater and seeping into drinking water? And what are the risks? And a new report calls the situation a groundwater emergency. I'm J. Carl Ganter, director of Circle of Blue, and we're coming to you live from Interlochen Public Radio with another interactive broadcast. This H2O Catalyst is part of a series of urgent conversations about the world's number one global risk, risks to supplies of fresh water around the planet and how to respond. To share your questions and comments via Twitter, use the hashtag NoWater, that's K-N-O-W, water. And we've already received dozens of questions, so send along yours. And you also have the chance to discuss these issues live during today's event in special breakout groups with expert guests and journalists from Bridge, Circle of Blue, Detroit Public Television's Great Lakes Now, and MLive. So after opening remarks, we'll be going to our experts and into breakout groups where you can join the conversation. And we'll first be joined by Democratic Senator Gary Peters of Michigan. Last week, he called a Senate subcommittee hearing to dig deep into the ramifications of a chemical family called PFAS that is contaminating groundwater in Michigan and across the nation. And we'll speak with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, the pediatrician who exposed water contamination in Flint, Michigan. And then we'll be joined by experts and journalists on the front lines of these stories that are evolving every day. We'll learn what happens to PFAS chemicals in groundwater from Dr. Christopher Higgins, environmental chemist at the Colorado School of Mines, and more about what experts are calling Michigan's groundwater emergency from Dave Dempsey, Senior Policy Advisor at Flow and the report's author. And we'll hear about the Clean Water Act, Coal, Ash, and Groundwater from Lisa Wodowski-Hallowell, Senior Attorney at the Environmental Integrity Project. We've been receiving questions in advance and lots of them, and we pass them along to our moderators for the breakout groups ahead. And the results of the program, including a podcast version, 
will be posted online. But first, Circle of Blues' Brett Walton spoke earlier today with Senator Gary Peters, Democrat of Michigan. Last week, you helped convene a Senate subcommittee hearing on the federal role in responding to perfluorinated chemicals, also known as PFAS. Based on that hearing, what do you feel is Congress's role in this? Well, I think there's a, a number of things uh, that we have to do. Uh, first uh, and foremost, uh, we need to put more money into to research. Uh, one thing that came out very clear in the hearing was that we still don't know a whole lot about the, the human health effects about this class of chemicals, and we're talking about 3,500 different type of PFAS chemicals. Uh, we need to uh, have uh, increased research dollars. In fact, part of uh, what came out of the hearing, which I think was a surprise to some folks, is that the uh, the impact on the human body may not be limited to folks who are drinking water uh, with PFAS in it. There also may be an op- uh, there may be a pathway for uh, through the air or even uh, in skin contact. And certainly that's uh, very concerning given the fact that PFAS is put on upholsteries and in clothing and other ways that people may have uh, contact with it. So certainly there's a need for additional research. But the other fact that I think is absolutely critical is that the EPA has an enforceable standard. Uh, And I pushed them pretty hard in that uh, committee that we've got to have the standard. Folks need to know uh, what is uh, a safe level, if any, uh, and what standards do we have to to clean up to. Uh, I was reassured uh, by the EPA that they thought they'd have something uh, this fall, uh, that they've been saying that for some time. They've always uh, and kicking the can down the road, and we're going to keep uh, pushing that. And I think the third area certainly is where where accountability can be tied to federal properties, particularly the Department of Defense. You know, a number of military facilities uh, were um, uh, have uh, this type of contamination as a result of their firefighting uh, foam, and so there will be uh, there will be contamination uh, related to that, and we're going to have costs associated with uh, that cleanup. But I've also, uh, in the short run, have been working to try to limit the amount of PFAS that's going into the environment. Uh, in fact, in the FAA reauthorization that we're going to be taking up this week in uh, in the Senate, uh, I've got language in there that will allow civilian airports to use alternatives uh, to uh, PFAS uh, in their firefighting foam, thus reducing the amount going into our into our environment. The EPA is preparing a PFAS management plan that's expected to be released by the end of the year. What do you hope to see in that plan? Well, I hope, uh, first off, we can uh, get an enforceable standards uh, so that we can hold folks uh, accountable uh, for this kind of contamination, not just on uh, federal government uh, properties, uh, Department of Defense, et cetera, but also private industry. You know, this is not uh, a contamination that's uh, confined to federal properties, although that certainly contributes to it. But we have when a lot of sites en- throughout Michigan. When you say enforceable standards, meaning meaning what? Well, meaning that there's a standard to clean up, and if you can find a accountability for someone that they're the ones responsible for the PFAS, that they would then be uh, required to, to uh, uh, start uh, mitigation strategies as well as clean up. And then are you interested in a, or think it's necessary to have a drinking water standard from the EPA? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's part of uh, what we'll be uh, continuing to push for. And if the EPA decides not to act, is that something that Congress should consider requiring? Yes, yeah, definitely. There's no question this is uh, critically important. I think, you know, PFAS, this could very well be a situation very similar to uh, to lead uh, and other things, that products that have been widely used and were widely used uh, throughout many, many years people have been exposed to. Uh, this is something that uh, we need to be addressing uh, nationally. This is not a Michigan issue. This is a national issue. In fact, at our hearing, I had uh, my two colleagues uh, from New Hampshire uh, there, who were very concerned, uh, very high levels of PFAS contamination in, in many parts of New Hampshire as well. So 
Uh, this is a, a national problem that requires my colleagues uh, throughout the Senate and the House uh, to be engaged in. What information do you feel like you need to know that you don't know to take additional next steps? Well, part of it is uh, back to the uh, health-related uh, information. You know, the National Institute of Health uh, figures feels that they don't really fully understand how all of this works, and, and it may also be difficult to know uh, if there are any kinds of safe levels. It depends on the kind of research. I did secure some additional funding through the NDAA, which is our National Defense Authorization for uh, increased uh, research uh, into these uh, chemicals, but it is uh, not, that's not an easy task given the fact that this, this class has 3,500 uh, chemicals associated with it, but it certainly uh, leads to a number of questions as to how we are creating these chemicals uh, that without kind of uh, background testing to understand what impact they may have on the human body, they eventually will get released uh, into the environment. And now with new technologies that are coming uh, on board, we're likely to see even newer compounds coming uh, out uh, at an accelerated uh, rate. So I think this raises a host of questions, not just related to PFAS, but generally the, the manufacture of uh, new chemicals uh, and whether or not they pose a potential human risk. And lastly, the EPA has said that it will hold a community meeting in Michigan later this week to discuss PFAS chemicals. They've held similar meetings in other states around the country. Do you have any additional information about that meeting that you can share with us? Uh, we are in the process of uh, working uh, with, uh, with them uh, right now as far as uh, working out the details, and we'll have that information shortly. The meeting is on October 4th and 5th, correct? That's correct. That's what I have as the dates. But as far as uh, more individualized details, uh, my staff has been in communication uh, with them, and we're still developing uh, uh, are still finding out exactly what they have in mind and pushing uh, them to make sure that they give every opportunity possible for individuals to be able to express their concerns about this. All right. Thank you, Senator Peters. Oh, great to be with you. Thank you so much. And that was Circle of Blues' Brett Walton with Senator Gary Peters. And now we have Dr. Mona Hanna-Tisha on the line. Dr. Mona, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's our, it's our pleasure. And you have a new book out, um, What the Eyes Don't See, A Story of Crisis, Resistance, and Hope in an American City. And that American city is Flint, Michigan. And last night you spoke to a full house of about 700 at the National Writers Series in Traverse City. Before you even started, you got a standing ovation. So uh, overall, what do you think that means? 700 people standing before you even started. What's, what's, what's that telling you? It's absolutely humbling, and it, it reminds me that our state cares. It cares about water. It cares about our children. Um, so it was great to be in Traverse City to share the story um, of Flint. But the story in my book and, and really what I hope to share with you today is that Flint's just the tip of the iceberg. So, um, you know, the title of my book is What the Eyes Don't See. So it's very much about about what happened in Flint. You know, lead is something that's Lead and water, we don't see it. We don't see the effects of lead. It's a, known as a silent epidemic, but it's also about lots of things that we don't see, not just in Flint. It's about problems um, that are often underground and out of sight and not in my city that we do. Having been through the Flint crisis, what's really your advice as Michigan and the nation turns attention from water pipes, water pipes really, to water underground where it's even harder to see? Yeah, and I think that's definitely what Flint has 
brought to light, that we've really opened people's eyes all over to what what is in our drinking water. Because of Flint, there's been these incredible ripple, ripple effects that people are now testing and they're, they're questioning the safety of their water and, and, and they're finding contaminants, be it lead or be it PFAS. Um, they, they're no longer believing that our water is safe. Um, and I think that's, that's amazing. I think that's incredible. I think people need to be engaged and understand um, what we really took for granted. And even myself as a pediatrician uh, in the middle of the Great Lakes, I, I believed and I told my patients that our water was always safe and it was not. Uh, what we're seeing right now with, with PFOS and what Senator Peters alluded to um, is really a, a history in this nation where industry has had the upper hand. We have been governed um, by, by industry making scientists prove um, that their chemicals that they put into the environment um, are safe until proven harmful. Um, and that is absolutely contrary to common sense and contrary to what we need to practice in public health and pediatrics, which is the precautionary principle. We should not be putting all these chemicals into the environment un- you know, unless, unless they are proven safe rather than uh, proving harm. Uh, and, and so often we g- neglect um, what happens to our children uh, who are, bear the brunt of these contaminants, and we don't see the consequences for years, if not decades, if not generations later. So it's, you know, more than a doctor in the book, you are really a detective and, and really diving into this for, for groundwater and for, all, for these other contaminations, uh, contaminants, you know, we, we met with people who, and one of our headlines was, uh, you know, there's fear and fury. People were scared and they're upset. It took you more than a year to really reveal the Flint challenge. Um, what do people do? Yeah, so I think one of the lessons of Flint, which was proven successful, is, is the necessity to, to form teams, um, to, to build a village of folks that are united in, in whatever cause that you were working towards. So in Flint, it, it was a group of folks that were moms and activists and the incredible role of journalists and water scientists and the medical community that came together. Uh, so it's it just as your you know, agenda today has all these different diverse multidisciplinary folks who are bringing this issue to light, that's how we should continue our advocacy as we continue to uncover these similar issues. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, and Dr. Mona, I know you have a busy day, so thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I applaud your efforts. Uh, to bring these issues to light. And now we're going to turn to Garrett Ellison. And Garrett is a reporter for Elman Live who's been covering the PFAS situation. And Garrett, we'd love for you to give us a general status, uh, kind of an overall report. What's happened and where is the story headed? Oh, well, thanks for having me, uh, Carl. Um, you might be able to say this past year, uh, um, I think everybody who pays attention has been seeing uh, PFAS uh, in, in the headlines on an almost daily basis. And uh, that's largely due to uh, what happened uh, last summer um, when the news broke uh, regarding the Wolverine worldwide contamination in the Rockford-Belmont area. That was essentially the discovery that tannery waste, which had been dumped in a, a landfill back in the 60s and completely forgotten in the meantime, Uh, was discovered to have uh, contaminated wells in the Belmont area. And once that discovery sort of reached the public consciousness, uh, it's it's kind of brought us to some degree in Michigan uh, where we're at today, which is a statewide effort to 
uh, root out PFAS uh, in the environment uh, in many different places and as many different media as possible they're looking for it and, and, and groundwater and lakes and rivers and uh, the Great Lakes and landfill leachate and wastewater and drinking water and so it's it, there's a there's a real effort by the state right now to, to find PFAS. You know, to go back a little ways, you know, we, we first kind of found it. I guess the state state regulators first found it in 2010 in Oscoda um, at the former Woodsmith Air Force Base. And so the folks up in Oscoda have been really dealing with it uh, as a fact of life uh, much, much longer than everybody else has. And I think you referenced earlier your Circle of Blues piece by, uh, you know, um, Fury, uh, Fear and Fury. And uh, that, that's a pretty good way, I think, of um, uh, characterizing uh, what the folks in Oscoda are feeling. They're, um, you know, they're mad. Uh, things have been taking quite a while to get to uh, where they are up there, which is, uh, at this point, they've got some actual actual active remediation going on, which is further along than any other site in Michigan. We've got quite a, quite a large universe of sites, though, and, and part of the issue of uh, well, part of the uh, everybody seeing new headlines on a daily basis is because you know the state's looking for it, it's paying attention to it now, and it's finding it. And now people are becoming through that process, people are becoming much more aware of what the risks are, uh, what that means. You've got, I think, at this point, we have about 1.8 million people in Michigan are drinking municipal water with some level of this uh, contaminant in it, even. You know, that ranges uh, from, I'd say, about 1,800 parts per trillion was what they found in parchment, uh, and then down to about two parts per trillion, and that's what you're getting in the Grand Rapids water system, uh, which pulls directly from Lake Michigan and isn't filtered in any way, uh, at least for this contaminant. So, you know, it's quite a bit... Quite a, quite a lot of people in Michigan are, are drinking some level of it. You, you, there's been a lot of, I think, attention recently on the, the Huron River over in southeast Michigan. Uh, they're finding PFAS is entering a tributary uh, through a, a wastewater treatment plant in Wixom. It's an industrial source of the pollution. It's uh, chrome platers, uh, the auto supply industry. Uh, and so you're seeing a do not eat fish advisory, an emergency do not eat fish advisory, which is a fairly rare thing. You're seeing a lot more attention being paid to foam um, on surface waters. Um, what used to be in the past, people would just sort of not really pay a whole lot of attention to. Just you, know, you see foam on a river and you don't think too much of it. Now people are paying more attention to that and going, okay, is that a is that a pollution concern? You know, PFAS as a surfactant, and you know, in wind and agit water agitation, it foams up. Uh, we're seeing that in Rockford and Oscoda. We're seeing it on the Huron River and Ann Arbor. We're seeing it in Grayling. It's starting to pop up, and it's not just in Michigan. There are other places around the country and the world that are having that problem. So, you know, we've got a pretty large universe of contaminated sites in Michigan. We're dealing with tanneries, waste dumps, air bases, uh, Selfridge, Wordsmiths, uh, K.I. Sawyer, Grayling, Battle Creek, Alpena. Um, we've got airports, Ford Airport in Grand Rapids, Bishop and Muskegon, Muskegon Air County Airport. Uh, it's getting into lakes and rivers through wastewater treatment plant. You know, sources include uh, chrome plating industries, GM uh, former GM properties, the Racer Trust stuff, 
uh, old landfills, what? active landfills. So it's just it's quite a quite a list, quite a broad universe of. You know, we'll come back to you in the breakout group as well too, and we can elaborate on that. So Garrett Ellison has been covering the story for M Live, and his reporting can be found at MLive.com. And like I said, we'll hear more from you, Garrett, in just just a few minutes. But now let's go back to Brett Walton, our senior reporter at Circle of Blue, who's been covering groundwater issues worldwide. And Brett, we heard from Garrett about Michigan's groundwater challenges and your conversation with Senator Peters. Set the scene and walk us through the complicated groundwater story that it's affecting people across the nation. Thanks, Carl. Uh, Well, much of the nation's groundwater is of good, good quality. Pollution risks are numerous, dispersed, and growing. Coal ash ponds drip heavy metals into aquifers, while nitrates from farms, livestock operations, and septic tanks percolate underground. Abandoned mines and industrial sites often place the burden of cleanup on the public. Add to that, you have leaking oil storage tanks, wastewater injection wells, and waste dumps as other sources of concern. Across the country, the slow buildup of pollution, like the accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere, has profound consequences. People are getting sick with cancers, diarrheal illness, developmental diseases, and maladies we previously thought eradicated in the country. The hottest groundwater pollution issue today, as we've mentioned, uh, is the group of industrial chemicals known as PFAS. Thousands of chemicals, as others have alluded to, are in commercial use in the U.S. without knowledge of how they alter human bodies or ecosystems as a whole. These compounds have found their way into groundwater around the nation. Uh, PFAS, the latest example, they were developed by chemical companies after the Second World War. They were incorporated into a dazzling range of household products, nonstick skillets, water-repelling jackets, stain-resistant carpets, floor cleaners, waxes, paints, insect traps, a wide, wide variety of uses. In groundwater, they've been traced across the country to military bases, fire stations, landfills, hospitals, schools. These are all large institutions that use foams or waxes or cleaners that contain the chemicals. In fact, the closer that regulators and scientists look at drinking water supplies, the more PFAS chemicals they find. The Defense Department is one major source. The department counts more than 400 active or closed bases with a known or suspected release of PFAS. And the military has spent more than $210 million on cleanup so far. What they will have to spend in the future is a matter of some debate. Full remediation and payment of health benefits, if it comes to that, will cost tens of billions of dollars, though no comprehensive accounting has taken place. These issues are playing out in hundreds of communities around the country, from New Hampshire and New York to Colorado and Washington. They've drawn intense scrutiny in Michigan, which, as Garrett mentioned, is one of the most affected states. Uh, In Michigan, at least 35 contamination sites, from military bases to the industrial waste dumps uh, from the tannery waste, have affected drinking water of, as we said, perhaps 1.8 million people, according to state figures. Uh, Today, we have three speakers who will help guide us through some of these issues, and we will be able to join them, listeners will be able to join them in breakout groups later in in this call. Our first speaker we have is Christopher Higgins. He's an environmental chemist at the Colorado School of Mines. Christopher, why do we need to pay attention to PFAS chemicals? It's a great question, um, and the, the short answer is that the, the group of compounds that we're really most concerned about, which are these, these uh, truly perfluorinated compounds, uh, a subgroup of, of PFAS uh, more broadly, they're extremely persistent in the environment. Uh, basically, uh, they, they redefine uh, the meaning of environmental persistence uh, in environmental chemistry, and, and what that means is they're going to be with us for a very, very long time. 
so that alone is 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 potentially problematic uh, because it just leaves them there that much longer to potentially cause a problem. Uh, but there are some additional uh, aspects of these chemistries or these chemicals, I should say, that um, also uh, have created some concern. And, and chief among them is the fact that these compounds combine two types of behavior uh, that we don't normally uh, see in a combination. So when we think about environmental contaminants, um, there are several compounds out there that are relatively mobile. So they move fairly quickly in groundwaters and surface waters. Uh, and yet they, they don't tend to bioaccumulate. Um, and, and on the flip side, there are also some compounds, uh, PCBs being a good example, uh, which are fairly bioaccumulative, uh, but not very mobile. We think of them as very much uh, focused on, on specific sites, uh, a contaminated sediment site or, or so on. The problematic aspect of, of PFAS, and again, particularly the perfluoroalkyl acids, is that some of them are both mobile and bioaccumulative. Uh, and so it means they can uh, spread much more rapidly but also bioaccumulate uh, either in fish or in crops. Uh, and so that, that creates lots of concern in terms of the, the spread and, and, and speaks to the broader uh, potential for exposure uh, of the population. I, and then stepping I think, back Chris, from... We can, we okay. can go uh, a bit more into detail on the, the fate and the transport of PFAS chemicals in the environment uh, in the breakout groups. So that was Christopher Higgins at Colorado School of Mines. Our next speaker we have is Dave Dempsey. He's a senior advisor at SLOW, and he's the author of a recent report on Michigan's groundwater emergency. Dave, what makes it an emergency? Good afternoon. Well, it's an emergency because there are a variety of threats to groundwater that are either being poorly addressed or not addressed at all. And I think it's important to begin by just recognizing how important groundwater is. talked about what the eyes can't see, and they definitely cannot see groundwater until it comes to the surface. But while it's beneath the surface, it can do a lot of good or a lot of harm. In Michigan, 45% of the population gets its drinking water from groundwater sources. The figure nationally is about 38%. Uh, but we also depend on it for other uses, such as agricultural and industrial. And importantly, if you want to have healthy Great Lakes, you have to have healthy groundwater. About 20 to 40 percent of the flow to the water budget of the Great Lakes originates as groundwater, either seeping directly into the lakes or more commonly feeding rivers and streams that then are transported to the lakes. So our report lays out the importance of groundwater, but also the variety of threats, some of which we've already heard about, including PFAS. Some of the vectors include leaking uh, septic systems, which in Michigan are estimated to be about 130,000 that leak, not only bacterial waste, but because we use a lot of chemicals in our homes, can also uh, release chemicals to the groundwater. As mentioned, agricultural practices can also contaminate groundwater and are doing so at thousands of private wells across the state with, with the nitrate. We also have a legacy of thousands of still uh, not cleaned up contamination sites for which we need some kind of funding source to assure they don't cause further problems. Um, Michigan taxpayers have already spent over a billion dollars on cleanup and it looks like they'll have to spend another billion over the next 20 years to deal with groundwater contamination. Um, finally, um, one of FLOW's central purposes is to remind people of the importance of the public trust doctrine and the responsibility of government to protect water resources unimpaired and to prevent privatization. And because groundwater is so closely linked to 
surface water, it's important that we extend that obligation and those protections to groundwater as well. All right. Thank you. That's Dave Dempsey, and we'll have a chance to go more into depth on Michigan's groundwater emergency and the breakout groups. Our third speaker we have today is Lisa Wadalski hallowell She's a senior attorney at the Environmental Integrity Project who focuses on coal ash. Lisa, how does coal ash affect groundwater? Sure. That's a really important question uh, this year uh, and in general. So coal ash, uh, also known as coal combustion residuals or CCRs, is the byproduct of burning coal. It contains a variety of pollutants, including arsenic, selenium, boron, and cadmium that can cause adverse effects to human health and the environment if released into groundwater and other mediums. Uh, every year, more than 110 million tons of coal ash is gen generated at coal-fired power plants. Uh, while some is reused, much of the coal ash is simply disposed of in dry disposal sites called landfills or wet ponds called surface impoundments. Coal ash has been in the news a lot. Uh, in the last 10 years, and recently uh, due to several catastrophic breaches, including the breach at the TVA Kingston plant in 2008, which caused more than a billion gallons of coal ash to spill into two rivers. Uh, most recently, coal ash has been in the news uh, as Hurricane Florence headwaters in North Carolina breached coal ash dams at a couple of power plants, causing coal ash to flow into the Cape Fear and Noose rivers. However, much of the risk associated with coal ash disposal sites lies not in these catastrophic breaches, but in the leaking and seeping of coal ash co contaminants from unlined or poorly lined disposal units into underlying groundwater. Many coal ash disposal sites have been operating for decades without liners uh, or with inadequate liners, and many sites that are no longer receiving waste can still uh, continue to leach pollutants into groundwater at unsafe levels for a century or more. Prior to 2015, there were no federal regulations governing how to dispose of coal ash. So states had a patchwork of laws, uh, or some had no rules at all for how or where coal ash could be placed. A compilation of damage cases by the U.S. EPA following the breach of the Kingston Dam resulted in EPA confirming in 2014 that there had been at least 157 coal ash damage cases nationwide. Notably for our talk today, 10 of these damage cases were in Michigan. Hmm. Uh, damage cases are sites where health effects were confirmed by scientific studies or administrative ruling. And this was the highest number of damage cases for any type of waste reviewed by the EPA at that time. What we're going to do is, uh, is put everybody into breakout groups, um, and you'll be able to carry on that conversation with Lisa and Dave and Chris Higgins um, here in just a minute. And the panelists and moderators uh, will explore these ideas in much more detail. And once you're in the group, this is where it gets fun, you'll see a shared document on your screen. If you have a question for a panelist, uh, you'll type it into the document so the moderator can see it. And you'll have the choice of joining one of these three dynamic groups using your phone or the Maestro screen. So pay attention here. I'll say this twice. Uh, group one is Great Lakes Now reporter Mary Ellen Geist is joining us, and she'll be talking to Dr. Christopher Higgins. And you'll hear more from uh, Dr. Higgins, an environmental chemist at, this co at the Colorado School of Mines, and as you heard, an expert on PFAS chemicals and groundwater. Group number two 
is MLive reporter Garrett Ellison with Dave Dempsey, author of the new report, Michigan's Groundwater Emergency, and talking about other forms of pollution beyond PFAS uh, that are affecting Michigan and Michigan's groundwater and groundwater elsewhere, too, around the Great Lakes. And then group number three is Circle of Blues' Brett Walton with Lisa Wodowski-Howell, senior attorney with the Environmental Integrity Project, talking about the Clean Water Act and more specifically about coal ash. So we'll give you a moment to make your choice now. Again, press one on your phone or the raised hand on your interface for group one with Mary Ellen Geist and Dr. Chris Higgins and PFAS Impacts. Press two for Garrett Ellison and Dave Dempsey on Michigan's Groundwater and three for Brett Walton with Lisa Wodowski, Hallowell and the Clean Water Act. Carl Ganter here. Some great conversations, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, fascinating listening to your comments and the breakout groups. I had a chance actually to surf all the sessions. Um, so we'll take just a few seconds uh, to bring us all back to group, and we'll have report outs from our discussion leaders, and we'll have our experts in the room as well. Um, so uh, just hang with us for just a moment or two, and we'll bring you all back to group. Great. Um, well, again, fascinating listening to the conversations. And what I'd like to do is take a few minutes to hear highlights, really, from each of our discussion leaders. And then we'll go back to a bigger group discussion for overall perspective. We've been capturing your comments and additional questions. Um, and also, let me point you to the work of our, of our moderators and our collaborators in this project. Uh, Detroit Public Television's Great Lakes Now is at greatlakesnow.org. Bridge Magazine is bridgemi.com, of course, mlive.com, and circleofblue.org. You'll find all of our uh, Great Lakes and national and global groundwater coverage there at circleofblue.org. Mary Ellen, you were in with Dr. Christopher Higgins. Uh, give us a sense of uh, what you talked about. What were some of the main points? I think one of the most riveting parts and perhaps frightening is we talked about response to it and how the government might be involved and what can we can be doing personally and on a public level, on a federal and local and state level. And he said, this is one of the most challenging issues of our time. And even as a chemist who studied this chemical for 17 years, we know so little about it. What we do know, I think, you know, causes a lot of consternation for so many people in that it is a forever chemical. This chemical is in you. It's in me. It's been found in the blood of polar bears in the Arctic. Um, it's everywhere. If it is ingested, um, it stays in the body for many years. And if it's in rivers and streams and oceans and lakes, it stays in for a very long time as well. And so we could get into some of the chemical makeup and some of the discussions we had of how it's in the groundwater. But I think the pervasiveness of it and the way that it stays in the body and in the land and in the environment in every way and how it's found everywhere, all because of a chemical that humans wanted to find that, you know, would waterproof things, um, would work in fire retardants, would keep oil and water off of a material, and the way that humans had no idea when they invented this chemical that it could, sh it could end up everywhere and in our bodies. And there really are not many answers right now about how to get rid of it. Uh, Mary Ellen, thanks so much. We'll come back to you in just a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, Garrett, um, fill us in. Uh, well, uh Dave and I talked about uh, largely the uh, new report out from uh, Dave's uh, nonprofit uh, Flow uh, for all of Long and Trevor City, and we talked about the fact that um, it sounds like Michigan's a fairly poor steward um, of the groundwater. Uh, the report is more or less calling for a uh, 
kind of an overhaul in the way the state presses groundwater through, you know, regulation and, and just sort of the, and maybe, maybe some sort of a philosophical uh, approach to thinking about it. You know, it's an out-of-sight, out-of-mind uh, approach is the way that um, uh, Dave and Flo kind of characterize it. And, you know, uh, we talked about some of the concerns, some of the issues that we're having with groundwater, particularly related to uh, contamination from uh, septic systems. There's something that the on order of... Uh, where is it here? Uh, there's uh, estimated 130,000 leaking septic systems uh, in the state. Uh, Michigan's the only uh, state in the nation which lacks a statewide law protecting groundwater or regulating uh, groundwater as it relates to septic systems. You know, so so there's that's one of these uh, recommendations that uh, Flo is making here related to how we ought to. Uh, uh, rethink our approach to groundwater. Uh, some of the recommendations here include uh, identifying long-term funding, such as a, a bond fund uh, going straight to board voters, uh, uh, figuring out ways to clean up orphaned uh, toxic sites, uh, some of these sites that um, no longer have a liable party, uh, in which case the uh, uh, public ends up being on the hook to pay for it. You know, we talked about uh, some public education, you know, how to discuss, uh, how to get the, get the word out, so to speak. Uh, and I guess some of the thought here is that we're just going to have to find out uh, how the uh, legislature um, and the new administration, uh, whether it be a shooting administration or a Whitmer administration, is going to approach this stuff following you know, the election in November. Great, thanks, Garrett. So it's just not—it's not just PFAS. It's uh, nitrates, orphaned legacy toxic sites, and a big taxpayer expense. So, and finally, a more national conversation with Brett Walton, uh, who was with uh, Lisa Wodowski Hollowell, and a national perspective. Brett. Hi, Carl. We talk mostly about coal ash, which has a lot of moving pieces right now uh, in the legal realm, especially, but also. Uh, and some rules and regulations. Initially, we started with kind of a baseline knowledge about where coal ash ponds are located, what they are, what they store, and how they interact with groundwater and can be a conduit in some cases for pollutants to move to rivers and lakes through that groundwater. Some of those moving pieces we talked about are kind of twofold. One was a rule that the EPA put out in 2015 about um, coal ash impoundments and that was recently kind of sent back to the EPA by federal court saying that certain provisions were not strong enough and that uh, there needs to be revision to take place for that. The other path we talked about on the legal front is a bunch of court cases right now that have been heard by federal appeals courts about whether coal ash ponds, if they leak pollutants via groundwater into rivers and lakes, whether those coal ash ponds should be regulated under the Clean Water Act and courts to this point have come to conflicting conclusions about this conduit theory that groundwater um, pollutants that move through groundwater to a river or lake, uh, whether that should be regulated or not. And it's something that ultimately might end up as a question before the Supreme Court because there's been a split in the federal appeals courts and there's been a couple petitions to the Supreme Court to hear this issue. That's something to pay attention to in the, the years to come about uh, it's really a question about the scope of the Clean Water Act, which was generally not 
uh, applied to groundwater. Great. Thanks, Brett. Great report out from everybody. Uh, a quick question for, for all of you. Any questions among the group of moderators here uh, about the other groups that you weren't part of? Mary Ellen, any, any questions for the, uh, for the other folks? Well, I think that in, in general, what I'm not hearing that I'm getting just a lot, a lot of people in our space at greatlakesnow.org are asking questions about the health effects. And so from my research, I just wanted to lay this out and also see if any of you just discussed this in your groups. But as far as we know, it has been linked to high cholesterol, testicular cancer, kidney cancer, ulcerative colitis, thyroid problems, developmental problems, potential mis- for miscarriages. And I guess I sometimes think in the discussion, we don't really talk about what could potentially happen to human beings if they ingest high levels of PFOS. And I guess I just want to bring that up, that it is it can be quite a dangerous substance, according to many people, at high levels. And I wondered if any of you discussed this in any of your groups, the real effects, potential effects of drinking high levels of PFOS over a long period of time in drinking water or or through eating fish that have it. Anything else that any of you could say from your groups? Because those are the questions that I'm getting from people asking me questions about PFAS. Um, You know, uh, this is Garrett. Um, I can uh, tackle that a little bit. Uh, With the caveat, that's not really a discussion point that we got into uh, with Dave Dempsey and I in our group. But nonetheless, having done a lot of reporting on PFAS, what I can say is Mary Ellen, the, the list of symptoms you just uh, rattled off, that's largely uh, the, uh, the known associations, I believe, that were, that came out of what's known as the C8 health study, which was conducted on uh, the population around Parkersburg, um, West Virginia, and the Ohio River Valley, related to DuPont uh, putting a lot of PFOA, uh, one particular PFOS compound, into the drinking water supply for numerous communities. I think it was something like 60 to 70,000 people were, were part of this health uh, epidemiological health study that was paid for through a lawsuit brought against DuPont. And those, those health effects that you outlined are kind of the baseline to some degree health effects that the uh, ATSCR, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, which is part of the CDC, um, if you go to their website and you click on the link related to, you know, what, what are the known health effects of uh, PFOS, that's generally the, the list that you get. That's not the only, you know, associated health effects. It's just sort of the most concrete ones that have been studied uh, in terms of a population-wide study uh, that has stood up to peer review pretty well. There are definitely others, and it, it's just one of the, I think, difficulties with PFOS that uh, researchers and regulators and the academic community are trying to figure out is what are the different health effects of the different variants uh, of chemicals in the PFOS family? So what are the health effects of PFOS exposure versus PFOA exposure over an extended period of time? What are the health effects of a mixture of PFOS and PFOA and PFHXS and PFNA and other PFOS compounds that tend to be found in any given water sample that's tested for PFOS. You don't usually just get one. You get several. Some of them are individually at low levels, but when you add them together and and the sum total can be fairly high, higher than uh, health advisory uh, benchmarks at certain times. And what the fairly consistent answer that we get from 
uh, health experts is we just don't know yet. There's just not enough study, um, not enough uh, epidemiological study, you know, and, and it's, it's frustrating to try and, uh, from a journalist perspective, to try and translate that and turn it around and write, it's, uh, it convey the it's, it's complicated. the problem. It's really complicated. Hard data sometimes. Yeah, it's really complicated. Yeah. You know, Brett, did you have any questions for uh, for the rest of the rest of the group there after after being in with Lisa there and then and then hearing from uh, from Garrett and Mary Ellen? Yeah, I think we've got some uh, audience questions that have come in. We can get to those. Go for it. Uh, one of which here uh, was the question about cleanup and who's going to pay for cleanup costs. Why do water utilities have to take responsibility for cleaning up someone's problem? Um, so cleanup cost is a good question. It's something that uh, from a national level, we have the Superfund program, and that tries to find a responsible party and recover some of the cleanup costs from them. The problem with PFAS is that it needs to be designated a hazardous substance by the EPA to, be, to allow EPA to have the authority to in, require cleanups and to recover, to find the parties to recover costs from. Um, one of the problems here is that sometimes you cannot find a responsible party because a company might have gone out of business or it changed hands a bunch of times. And in that case, cleanup costs can be put on the taxpayer. And that's, I think, one of the, the points in the uh, flow report is that there's a lot of sites in Michigan that are on the taxpayer now because no responsible party has been found. Uh, cleanup costs are going to be massive. Uh, there's been no uh, estimate done nationally to take a look at this. I know that Senator Peters in his hearing last week requested from the uh, Defense Department an estimate of what it thinks it might take to clean up PFAS, uh, or PFAS compounds at military bases. And that's something that uh, we'll be looking for in the months to come is are there estimates and, and what is that number? Great, thanks, Brad. Chris, I, I'm really curious what you're what you're hearing. Um, you're in Colorado, looking across the way here at Michigan, and uh, as what Mary Ellen characterized as uh, you know one of the most profound challenges of our time. Uh, how'd your conversation go there, and, and what what are you hearing from from uh, um, from us here in Michigan? Uh, well, I think she she did a great job characterizing that because I do think uh, from a environmental contaminant perspective, it is it is one of the more challenging issues that we're going to have to deal with. And you know, hearing a little bit about the the, the issue of of you know talking with other health health experts about. What does it mean that we've got all these this milieu of, of of compounds in our water and the frustration of not knowing the answer? Um, you know, we we hear the same thing here talking to folks, and and I think it's this is kind of brings out the the broader conversation about how we're addressing chemicals and and safety. And I think that was brought up in the very first part of this this discussion and the need to rethink maybe how we're doing it and to think more about the the issue of the precautionary principle. I think one of your, your first speakers mentioned that. You know, I think from my perspective, the public has essentially accepted the idea. Many folks within the public have accepted the idea of the precautionary principle that is chemicals should be considered dangerous until proven safe, but that is not necessarily how our regulations are set up. And so I think that there's going to have to be a little bit of a reckoning with that. And, uh, and, and this issue may be the catalyst to provide that. It will be, uh, time will tell to see how that, how that plays out. Great. Thank you, Dr. Christopher Higgins, joining us from uh, the Colorado School of Mines. 
So it's one of the most challenging issues of our time. It heard it's it's all about what we can't see. And from the Great Lakes to polar bears, um, we're seeing uh, contaminants reaching from our shores all the way to the polar ice caps. So what we've learned today, it's a dynamic and deep and changing story, and we barely just scratched the surface. And from our sixth Great Lake in Michigan to the aquifers and contamination across the state and the nation, and what we're seeing here in our reporting at Circle of Blue around the world, it's one of the most important stories unfolding. And we did hear some solutions and some responses, a lot of call for education, asking really, what's in the water? Is it safe? And we'll keep asking the questions and hope that you will too. And to perhaps rethink how we think about that what we can't see and that what comes out of the tap. Again, just the start of a much, much greater conversation. And so I want to say thanks to our guests today. Uh, and of course, uh, Senator Gary Peters and Dr. Mona, Hannah Atisha, Dr. Christopher Higgins and Dave Dempsey and Lisa Wodowski Hallowell. And to our journalists who joined us today, uh, Garrett Ellison, Mary Ellen Geist, uh, Jim Malowitz was, uh, was in the room there too, from Bridge and DeBridge and Detroit Public Television's Great Lakes Now. And we're in the studios of Interlochen Public Radio with engineering help from Gary Langley. And to our team at Circle of Blue has all been here working on questions and all the behind the scenes. We've had help from Circle of Blue's Laura Hurd, uh, Connor Bebb, Cody Pope, and Matthew Welch with Kayla Craig in Michigan here and Barry and Sherry of the Maestro Conference team back in San Francisco and other parts far and wide. So read more at bridge.com, circleofblue.org, and greatlakesnow.org, and also, of course, mlive.com. A podcast version of this event will be posted online at circleofblue.org. And from all of us at Circle of Blue here, thanks so much for joining. There'll be lots more. I'm J. Carl Ganter. <laughs>